My name is Margot Picken, and I'm a visiting fellow at the Centre for the Study of Human Rights. I'm stepping in for Professor Margot Light, who directs the Human Rights Programme in the uh, in the Commonwealth of Independent States, which is based in the Centre. Unfortunately, she's been struck down with a serious chest infection and is very sorry that she can't be here. So I hope I'll be a reasonable substitute. Um, a warm welcome to you all and to our uh, three speakers this evening. Um, before introducing them, I'd just like to say a few words about uh, the format for this evening. We will end at, uh, at 8. Um, there will be a reception just outside the theatre for those of you who want to stay and chat a little bit. Um, can, you turn off, can you turn your mobile phones to silence? And if you want to comment on the event using Twitter or, or, or other things... Um, the hashtag is there on the backdrop of Russia. Also, the event is being recorded and there will be a podcast available um, on the website, hopefully next week. So, we're really very fortunate indeed uh, in our panel this evening. I'm going to introduce them in the order in which they will speak. Um, Mary McCauley has been engaged with the Russian human rights community for the past 20 years as a, a grant maker, consultant and analyst. She's the author of several books on Russian politics. She taught politics um, at Essex and Oxford universities before heading in 1995 the Ford Foundation's uh, office in, uh, in Moscow. And she had a particular responsibility for human rights and legal reform. Her latest book, and there will be uh, flyers available for you, um, will be published by IB Tourists in April um, of this year, and uh, its title is Human Rights in Russia, Citizens and the State, from Perestroika to Putin. Mary, welcome. Um, Roman Udot, I hope I've pronounced More or less okay. correctly, <laughs> um, co-chairs the Golas movement for the defense of voters' rights, which was set up in 2013 to carry on the work of the independent election watchdog Gollus um, when it fell victim to the foreign agents law in 2013. His experience is broad and diverse. He's an expert on data collection, processing and analysis, crowdfunding. He's organised nationwide election observation uh, his experience has ranged from ordinary observer to heading a large-scale international mission to observe the presidential elections in Ukraine in 2014. 
he has been in charge of mitigating the damage caused by the foreign agent's law and on reforming his organisation, Golos, into an activist movement. He lectures and gives seminars on various aspects of election observation. He's an investigative blogger and, he's, his, and has a personal blog on the website of Echo of Moscow. He's also been scriptwriter for several documentary films on election observation, exposing fraud and violations of human rights. <coughs> Our last speaker is uh, Dmitry Makarov. Dmitry is co-chair of the Coordinating Council of the International Youth Movement, Youth uh, Human Rights Movement, which is a network of activist youth groups and individuals with a secretariat in Voronezh, Russia. The movement was established in 1998 to foster a new generation of human rights activists in the newly independent states of the former Soviet Union. And Dmitry has been active in the movement for now over a decade. The movement's areas of focus include the defence of independent civil society, human rights education, and campaigns and advocacy for changes in law and policy. Dmitry has helped to launch regional non-governmental organisations, including the International Civic Initiative of the OSCE and the International Civic Solidarity Platform. He's also been an active participant in the non-governmental committee on international control over the human rights situation in Belarus and, more recently, in the Crimean Human Rights Field Mission to monitor the human rights situation in Crimea. Our panel will discuss the challenge of working for human rights in Russia today. Each will speak for no longer than 15 minutes so that we have enough time for questions and answers. Mary will begin with the historic context. Roman will present the perspective of his organisation, Golas, and Dmitri will end with a general overview. We'll then open to questions and answers from the floor. So thank you, and Mary. Margot has warned us she's going to be very strict about 15 minutes, so I really will try. I want to start with an extraordinary congress to defend human rights that was held in Moscow in the year 2001. It was held at the Cosmos Hotel, that big, big hotel which was built for the Olympics a decade earlier. So I'm going to start with that, then very briefly go over the changes that occur during the next 10 years to take the picture up until 2010, when again in the Cosmos Hotel, again organized by Russian leading Russian human rights groups, 
a constitutional forum was held to discuss the way forward. And what I'm trying to do here is to set some kind of background or context for which then Dimitri and Roman will take us to the present and how they see the present and perhaps the future. Well, so this extraordinary congress, as it was called, was indeed extraordinary. 600 delegates from 60 of Russia's about 80 regions arrived, came. The Congress was organized by leading Russian human rights groups. It was financed by Western foundations. Well, who were the delegates? What was the composition of this gathering? It consisted of delegates from starting, ranging from, say, the Memorial Human Rights Center that was monitoring the war in Chechnya, to those defending media freedoms, those defending the rights of children, orphans, refugees, those seeking to improve the situation in prisons, those favoring penal reform, environmental groups, those defending the rights of the disabled. And also there were the human rights centers, as they called themselves, which existed in a number of regions and also in Moscow and in St. Petersburg, which defended a range of rights. So what strikes one, and the first point is, the enormous diversity of interests that were gathered there and the very different concerns of those who attended, who spoke, who argued. So the first question I want to ask is, what was it that had produced this extraordinary human rights community. I would suggest the following, and I'm going sort of very simply, quickly, um, over key points. First of all, with the ending of Communist Party rule and a new constitution, there were, in the new constitution you had what you can call old rights, old Soviet rights, and new rights now were written in. The new constitution referred to international conventions... NGOs became independent, non-governmental organizations were now legal, autonomous, could exist and pursue their aims. All of this in a context in which human rights had become, I would say, part of the political global vocabulary that was being used after the end and got, got an extra boost after the end of the Cold War. It included in particular Europe, and at this time the Russian leadership was looking to Europe. Russia joined the Council of Europe. In 1998, signed the Convention on Human Rights, the European Convention. And that gave then Russian citizens and organizations the ability to turn to the European Court on Human Rights. So what I'm suggesting is that here we have a political framework in which the scope for activity was suddenly enormous, widened right out. But it was an environment in which political parties were losing their credibility, and it was one in which organizations which you could say uh, supported, defended collective interests, for example trade unions, were, lo were fading away, were just simply not acting on behalf of their members, if their members still belong to them. 
Yudmila Alexeyeva, who was a dissident who had belonged to the original Moscow-Helsinki group in the 1970s, then emigrated to America. She was now back, and in those early years of the 90s, she, with AFL-CIO support, was travelling the country hoping to see a solidarity movement. Well, it didn't come about. But she said as she travelled the country, she'd be approached by people who would never heard probably of Sakharov, certainly never read the Universal Declaration on Human Rights, but they wanted to do something. They wanted to do something in their country to improve the situation, to improve the position of of vulnerable people. Because after all, this was an environment in which the economy had collapsed and the state authorities, the state, the governments, really had ground to a halt in many respects. There was a huge set of needs. And the final factor that comes into the picture is Western financial assistance. Western uh, governments and also international and also foundations were prepared and anxious to support human rights. Now let's so that I would argue is the background which in which you see that Congress in 2001. Well, what were the results of the Congress? Was there a collect, was there collective action? Was there really a strategy? No. The delegates went home feeling perhaps emboldened, but no practical consequences came from that. However, the Congress had had attracted media attention, TV had reported it, opposition politicians were there. In other words, it made a noise and was recognised. The Putin leadership took note, took note And we do see, whether it's a consequence or not, or whether this would have happened anyway, we see the Putin Putin actually asked for a report, a confidential report, on these strange phenomena, these organisations, these NGOs, these human rights ones. After all, what were they? Did they present a threat? Uh, Or what were they about? Now, the report was confidential, I haven't seen it, but I'm told that it actually contained a pretty good account until it came to the question, what is their aim? What do they want to achieve? And the authors had responded to that, not very clear. It really wasn't very clear what they wanted to achieve. Not a surprising Response, it seems to me, given their aims were very, very different. It was such an extraordinary diverse community. During the next decade, we see the Putin leadership really following a policy, I would say, of attempting some incorporation into a managed democracy of what are described as constructive NGOs. We also see Putin set up a council for human rights and civil society, on which several leading human rights activists are included. There's a possibility to talk to the president every six months. On top of that, however, we find a great wariness and already statements criticising Western assistance and Western aid. 
After the disturbances, the troubles in Georgia and Ukraine in the mid-years of the decade, then we find increasing checks and controls of NGO organisations. NGOs continue to exist, our human rights NGOs, but they are the bureaucratic controls and the checks increase. All right, Margo? Yes? So we find on the one hand there's some kind of authorization, they, are, they do have a voice speaking to the president, but their life is becoming increasingly difficult. Now having said that, what happens to the human rights community over these 10 years from the turn of the century up until 2010? It becomes increasingly, I use the word professionalised, Here, in fact, Western assistance and Western input and expertise does influence, does affect the organisations, the way they operate. If if by 2010 you went into the offices of the Memorial Human Rights Centre, you might actually think you were in Liberty's office in London. What do I mean? Young lawyers sitting in crowded conditions behind desks with huge piles of paper in front of them, all working away very hard. They now have, they keep their books much better, they now know how to budget, and they have certain outreach strategies. All of that is important, plus the fact they're winning cases. We now have the young lawyers who've moved in The young lawyers are interested in working with the European Court of Human Rights. They're winning cases against uh, police brutality, against ill treatment of prisoners. They're winning them in the Russian courts and also uh, in the European Court of Human Rights. However, despite those gains, and they really are gains... ...you could say that the human rights community really has no input into policy-making, into decision-making at the top or in changing the overall framework. Having said that, there's two pieces of legislation passed which I don't think would have been passed without the human rights input, and that's the public inspection of prisons and alternative military serv- an alternative to military service. But essentially, effectively, by the time we get to 2010... They're, they're really cut out, and nor do they have any popular organised support in the community at large. They still have Western assistance, they have Western money, financial assistance, but they don't have organised support within the community. And this in an environment in which the media has come under political control under which elections have come under political control and the voice of human rights groups, therefore, becomes weaker and weaker. It's against that background that in 210, again, those leading human rights organisations decide to call a conference. This time it's called the Constitutional Forum. Again, in in the big hotel. This time they don't have the huge rooms that they occupied before, that about 100 people are present at this. And they say quite clearly that their aim is to discuss the issue of elections, 
of freedom of the media and the need for an independent judiciary. This time, opposition politicians are present, four of them leading different political small parties or factions, and the whole event is much more political. But what comes out of it, what it strikes one attending it is that you see really a distinction between those among the human rights community, and they are the minority who feel that political action must be taken, and the majority who really want to keep away, if possible, from overt political activity. They want to get on with defending their homeless children or with environmental... Well, environment takes you into politics pretty quick. Um, into, but the, the majority, I would say, attending, really do not want to get involved in politics. What happens as a consequence of this... Well, first of all, or what, what's it, what, how else has the situation changed? There's no TV cameras present for this. There's no journalists asking them questions. Uh, it doesn't appear at all as a public event. Yes, it's in the internet, but not, not I would say, not making big news. And that, again, as you might expect, no agreement on collective strategy. The four politicians can't agree among themselves, and the human rights organisations can't agree among themselves. Here, uh, at this... I'm just about finishing, Marco. Here, at this Congress, uh, I was struck, and Dimitri may correct me, after all, that's where I first met him... It seems to me there really is a division between an older generation of activists and politicians and the younger generation. The younger generation, the Dimitris of this world, make no statements at that constitutional forum. Somehow you have a feeling it's not their scene. So the question is, what is their scene? Meanwhile, as this is happening, different kinds of activity are beginning to appear. You've probably heard of the Blue Buckets protest, which took place. I won't describe it, but yes, the Blue Buckets protest. Then we get informal organisations going down to help with the floods in the south. Uh, All kinds of informal activities are beginning to appear to maybe support support cats, for example, or support homeless people, blogging, attacks on corruption. But this is a kind of informal underlay. It's not bringing people into the existing human rights community, into human rights organisations. There's the beginnings, but they're still very, very small, the beginnings of collective action in the industrial enterprises, in the factories. But there's no link-up or tie-up between any of this and the political parties. Well, that's the situation uh, in 2010. The elections are about to take place in 2011, and that then opens a whole new scene. And with that, I turn to the younger generation to tell us what it's all about.
Okay. My name is Roman Udot, or maybe Roman, I don't care at all. I'm from Golas organization. It's difficult to say because before we were association, later we have to switch to movement. Still the more we are the same bunch of people who observe elections. And our name is derived from the Russian vote. Golas means vote. I step aside a little bit to draw your attention because all of you know that on uh, September 18th, 2014, in Scotland, there, there was a referendum. And uh, some joker put online, uh, on, actually on uh, YouTube, such a movie, Election Fraud in Scotland. I tried to ha- highlight it, that it got quite popular and almost half of a million people watched it, Election Fraud in Scotland, published on 18th of September, British manager staffing box. <laughs> Don't think bad of me. And let's, let's have a look at that thing. I hope that we will be able to watch those British uh, managers staffing ballots. Yes, yes. <laughs> Awful British managers, you see? The longest face palm in history. Yeah. It's too, too thick, yes, yes. <laughs> oh. Come on, girl, come on. You're almost done. <laughs> that, that woman presumably uh, hides uh, the camera from this thing. It's a little bit away, yeah, you know. That's it? Okay. Not yet? Okay, you're free. So, of course you have to, you understand that it is not Scotland, it is election a la Russe. And this video was put on our website two, month, two years before Scottish election. <laughs> it was uh, precinct number 100 in St. Petersburg. And uh, they stuffed, uh, I don't remember exactly, 400 ballots and that stuff. You have to know that it's official data, it's official camera installed by decree by, of Mr. Putin, and it is our job to find this violation, to put it online, to draw attention of the public to them, and so on. And just uh, have a look on what really is going on. Not here, let's try it here. Okay. Uh, we try not to do uh, to, to show this one. For example, let's have a look at the Russian style. Uh, excuse me. What's going on? What's going on? This type of crime is called ballot box stuffing. And it's very rampant in Russia, and sometimes we are so happy that we are able to find a lot of them, and to make a video of them, and to put, to make small documentary of them. I am going to show it, it's about less than a minute, but it will give you an idea what Russian elections look like. I'm sorry for this advertisement. <laughs> it's, not, it's not my fault. They didn't pay me. <laughs> And I don't know how to get rid of it. <laughs> okay, here we are. Russian elections. And again, all the internet. 
So, not I, I, I think you got the general impression of Russian elections, and we have not only ballot box stuffing, we have multiple voting, we have a rewriting of final protocols, all bunch of things, awful things, which are easily findable. And when people uh, observe our elections, they look like that. <laughs> this picture get viral in Russia, it says he was an electoral observer. In Russia it's so supposed because it's in Russian. Usually all of us start our presentation with this one, but I did it with the Scottish referendum for change. <laughs> okay, we were founded in 2000, we observed eight national wide campaign, uh, we trained something about 25,000 of people. Before the crackdown on us, by the government, we had uh, 40 branches all over Russia. And just, I'm not going to delve into details with my scheme, but it's uh, just to give you a general impression how do we collect data. We collect data from voters, journalists, uh, members of polling stations, journalists, our own observers. Some of them can do it online, some of them can call uh, our call center. We uh, monitor uh, media, social media. Uh, we have lawyers who can come to connect uh, with caller and advise them, consult them. And uh, we um, we have special people. Before we publish it online, they monitor, they check it uh, as far as it's possible. And finally, it is focused in one single online reserve. It's called Map of Violation. And that map of violation looks like that. It is uh, exactly the same in famous elections on December 2011 when people decided that they were, had had enough. Anyway, uh, when violation uh, is uh, put into our database, it is uh, some number added here, and then you can zoom in, you can zoom out, you can see some uh, statistical data, and this thing draw attention of the authorities. And they decided that it is very dangerous. And they decided to switch it off. They called us into court and accused us of influencing the will of the people. I don't know how to translate it correctly. Uh, because it was the same job as usually journalists do. We find something, they verify it, and we put it online. But when you focus it in one point, it becomes very dangerous, and so they decided to switch off our website, and they made a, a, a prosecutor office made a complaint against us. Let me step aside again. All of you know this uh, now famous magazine, Charlie have something. I don't speak French, and I don't speak English as well, but anyway... <laughs> Uh, but none of you knows that in December 2011, our court, where our map of violation was judged, went on these pages of this famous now magazine. And uh, you see uh, Director of Golas, Cut uh, Day Regularities, and all that stuff. So that thing, that court hearing, were rather popular and draw a lot of attention. And you see that they do, I don't know how profits look like, but they draw our people quite resemblance. I see a lot of resemblance with real people. Anyway, 
Of course, we lost that call, but we were lucky enough to win time. We appealed in that because the court was um, on December the 2nd, and the elections was on December the 4th. We appealed, and we had some time, and our web resource was online. And next day after the election, a lot of people came to the streets in Moscow, and for the first time since the fall of the Soviet Union, such huge masses of people went on street and they were demanding fair elections. It's very strange because they were not demanding uh, uh, winning of one party or another. They were demanding the principle, the abstract principle of fair election. I don't, I'm not going to delve into political situation. We don't have any political parties, at least at that point. So... After that, series of rallies took place, and if you don't believe me, believe BBC, please, about the, <laughs> that it was the biggest protest since the fall of the Soviet Union. That's it. They're going to be shot again. It was on December the uh, 10th, 2011, just exactly after those uh, elections. And uh, Golos was lucky enough because we were collecting data for 10 years and nobody cared. And all of a sudden people awakened, looked at the data we collected, looked into our guidelines, our books and so on, and they came to the streets and they have been coming to the, coming to the streets since till the May and famous day of the uh, May of 6th, 2004. Several days before Putin held an inauguration, it was another story, but people uh, came uh, on the May, uh, on the 6th of May, came to the streets. It was a usual day. It was usual march of millions, as we call it, and uh, a huge crowds were gathered, and suddenly everything Usually peaceful march turned into violence, and a lot of people were beaten up, and it's, uh, we are, were absolutely unprepared. I was there as well, and uh, it's hard to describe it. You see that uh, even girl, girl no, nobody was prepared. Anyway, that crackdown continued in the legislature. And after they realized how strong electoral observation is and how angry people are, the authorities decided to punish uh, mass rallies. Yes, uh, I'm not too deep in mass rallies. I'm more, uh, and I know something now about elections, but they imposed huge fines. Later came Golas, and the amendments uh, were approved uh, on July 2012, uh, that infamous now foreign agent law, agents law, and that law came in force in November 2012, and already in, 2000, in April 2013, association goals was fined. Uh, we just, we, nobody uh, agreed to that law, and NGOs decided we are not going to into that register because, according to the law, we had to do it uh, voluntarily. Uh, the, the, at that point, uh, there was not. They don't have anything to compel us to do it, so we refused. So they fined us. 
we collected data uh, money for the fines on the streets actually and after that in the summer association uh, association activities were suspended till the end of the year then the then central branch i was uh, uh, executive director of was suspended as well and uh, in september 2013 we turned into movement movement is like a cloud it's a group of individual it's impossible to hit a cloud we just disperse and we collect again we have everything we have websites we have our publications we have our guidelines everything and they found that the, the authorities found that they are rather powerless against the cloud it's very difficult it's very easy to ban association association has a bank account uh, offices and whatever when we turned into a cloud into a movement we were uh, to some degree invul invulnerable for them and we observed next elections in september the 8th uh, as a movement with a huge number of activists and uh, we observed it all year round maybe if not a Crimean referendum. And as you know, in March 16th, 2014, the Crimean referendum was held. We decided not to observe it, but a lot of our activists on their own went to the peninsula and they put up online a lot of uh, reports, photos, and uh, just, I am going just to show what investigative journalism is. If you uh, look at this picture, you, should, you see crystal clear ballot box. Uh, nobody, uh, no envelope, and that guy is absolutely clear how that uh, soldier is voting. And even we can see the mark, and given the blank of that ballot, we see that they, that soldier voted for uh, joining Russia. So I wouldn't call that, even looking at pictures, it's not possible to call it independent. So you see it's absolutely controlled. Anyway, it's uh, my last, I think, slide. And uh, all of you know about all those uh, huge support for the president of the Russia. And, uh, of course, don't believe it. It is 85% uh, 80, of support. It is uh, the data published by FCOM. FCOM is a state-run organization. But of course, uh, your opponent would suggest that, okay, let's look at Levada data. Levada data is very close to the official data of Tsiom. And yes, of course, uh, I don't know what index of presidential power means, but it sounds very appealing, yeah. <laughs> and that power is close to 80%. Okay, and by the way, as an investigative journalist, I would see that it's very suspicious that <laughs> month after month, they put online the same figure. It's a little bit dodgy. Okay, but when you look on the index of economic activism and index of national well-being, you see that they are dropping. And uh, index of uh, economic optimism is very close to the uh, crisis of 2008. So, in reality, on the ground, people don't that happy what's going on. And that cause a lot of problems for the Kremlin because they have to help another elections. Elections, uh, since we were observing all year round, in 2014, un unpredictably, because we were believing that date of support, we uh, began to find that violations get back 
and all those ballot box stuffing, rewriting of protocols suddenly return to our polling, polling stations for no apparent reason. If people support the power, why the power had to falsify the elections? It's very strange. Anyway, my explanation to this is that they actually don't have that support and electoral data contradict those polling uh, or those surveys. Anyway, they started and we were as well collecting data, put it online, telling people what's the heck, what's going on, why all those falsification get back. So they started to expel our people representative from uh, uh, polling stations, from precincts, uh, for no reason. They don't have, they didn't have any legal basis for that because foreign agents, uh, we were not foreign agents, we were movement and so on. In September, there was United Election Day, again, mass falsification and mass expulsion from polling election commissions of our people. And in December, this uh, maybe two months ago, they decided that foreign agents don't have a right to enter polling stations. I think that evident that something strange is going on those polling stations because then at this moment they don't uh, let us enter them and on the basis that we are foreign agents. Okay, and now on this January uh, there is a bill on undesired entities. I think my friend will explain what does that mean, because it's still the bill. Well, but it means that uh, they are going to compile some uh, list of organizations or entities and say, if you have any connection to that organization, I don't know what means any connection, Still, the bill, you will get uh, some sort of a punishment or maybe imprisonment uh, or fine. So, let me finish with that sad picture because we have a very hard time before us. Thank you. Let me also uh, give you uh, a picture. Two dates, similar dates, December 10, uh, 2011, and December 10, 2014. December 10 is a Human Rights Day, symbolic date for the Human Rights Movement. Uh, December 10, 2011, uh, unprecedented number of people marching on the streets. Uh, protesting against what they've seen as fraudulent elections, demanding fair vote, demanding more democracy, uh, in a very uh, unprecedented atmosphere. I was there. I've seen the number of police, and I was surprised to see how uh, friendly and nonviolent they were, how friendly and open people were. Although just a few days before, there was a violent crackdown on the first spontaneous protest. But on December 10, it was a huge number of people who did not see uh, enemies in the police, and the police who did not see enemies in the people. It was quite an uh, inspiring moment at that time. December 10, 2014, just a few days ago, uh, Human Rights Day in Crimea, no, no, no. which is now no, no. under Russian jurisdiction. 
traditional date on which Crimean Tatars held their mass rallies. This time it was banned under the new newly imposed Russian legislation. The organizers uh, of the rally were attacked during a press conference, were thrown uh, at them uh, various objects, and the center of Simferopol in Crimea was blocked off. An unprecedented number of police and not so friendly people uh, present there. So, in three, what happened in three years? In three years, we had a number of events taking place and a number of turning points. First, there was an unprecedented number of uh, laws targeting uh, the civil society. In response to those mass rallies that continued, after December 10, 2011, that carried into 2012, that culminated in May 6, which turned violent, and as a result of which a number of people ended up with real prison terms. There was a, uh, a n- number of uh, major amendments into the law on assemblies, just to name a few. If you are fined three times for violations during assembly, you can end up in prison with a criminal sentence. It's now a criminal offense to, con- to uh, have numerous fines for various violations on freedom of assembly, and there are already people who have been charged with that offense and who are now getting up to, let's say, 38 days of administrative arrest, uh, 15 days of administrative arrest for simply going out uh, on the streets. Uh, in a peace, uh, peaceful uh, way. Uh, we have a number of additional reasons to ban assemblies. We have uh, legislative grounds to consider just a simple gathering of people an illegal assembly and uh, once more to have people fined for participating in it. That's uh, freedom of assembly. Freedom of expression. Once more, uh, a government can shut down a website and can block entrance to it. Uh, And we have a number of various websites, including of uh, uh, mass media organizations, blocked and unable to to be accessed directly in Russia. We have a criminal offense for libel and defamation. We have uh, a tightened uh, um, fines and tightened prison sentence for so-called extremism laws. And other extremists, you can understand uh, uh, very widely very number, uh, a large number of offenses. For example, inciting hatred to- towards a social group government workers. Or uh, discussing the territorial, uh, um, territorial integrity of Russia. Discussing the very fact that Crimea is not Russian territory. Can, is a crime, can commits a crime of extremism, of separatism, and can lead you up to four years in prison, and if you do that on the internet, up to five years in prison. Uh, simply communicating with international organization and transmitting to them information that may be considered harmful to the interests of Russia uh, constitutes, if you read the, criminal, the new criminal code, it, uh, a crime of treason and can also lead you to prison. Uh, freedom of association. Another uh, right integral to civil society. You have an infamous uh, foreign agents law, which basically states that uh, a government can place you on a list of foreign agents 
if you have two factors. First, if you receive foreign funding, which can mean that you receive a donation from a foreign company, you receive a donation from a foreign entity, you receive a donation from a foreign member of your organization, even if that member is based in Belarus or in Kazakhstan, not, on, not, in the, not necessarily in Western Europe or in the U.S., uh, or if you receive uh, funding from an entity that receives funding from a foreign entity. Uh, that all constitutes foreign funding. Even if you receive funding from the U.N., it constitutes foreign funding. That's one factor. Second factor, it's you're engaged in political activity. Now, political activity is two things, according to this law. It is uh, influencing the government and influencing public opinion. And in my point of view, that's what uh, responsible citizens do. They try to influence either the government or the public opinion. Uh, but that constitutes a political activity. And if that's done with foreign funding, even if foreign funding comes in just one cent coming from your member in Belarus, and you're trying to influence public opinion, for example, in publishing uh, in your blog in information about election fraud, that constitutes a political, uh, constitute, it makes you foreign agent. And that's what organizations like Golas have been through, and that's what a number of other organizations have been going through. Now, the cynicism of this whole law is that, first of all, the government tried to make organizations voluntarily enter that list. After none of them did so, they now do it automatically themselves. And now there are a number of cases increasing day by day, new and new uh, NGOs being included in that list by the Ministry of Justice. Now there's a new bill coming up. If the previous were not enough, there's a new bill of undesirable organizations. Whatever that means, in reality it means that now you can consider a private entity, a company, an undesirable company in Russia, which means they cannot operate anymore, and it also means that you cannot receive funding from it. For example, you can, you can have, uh, if uh, Coca-Cola dares to criticize Russian state, you can consider it an undesirable company, and uh, I mean, accepting a donation from Coca-Cola would make you an offense, will constitute an offense. How it will be this new bill will be uh, executed it's still to be, to be seen. Uh, of course, you can, you can see very little logic inside those uh, legislation, but you can see kind of a sinister logic behind it, because if you consider who are the main targets of those laws, you see that the main targets, it's this independent civil society that showed its face on December 10, 2011, and in unprecedented mass rallies after that. Uh, and you can see that the main NGOs, for example, being targeted are human rights NGOs, environmental NGOs, anti-corruption NGOs. Those NGOs that criticize the government and its uh, behavior. And you can see how through this free laws, through free, was three years, the space for civil society to operate has been shrinking through legislation. But that's not the only thing. Second huge factor, the uh, enormous um, acceptance Mm, enormous militarization of society, enormous acceptance that violence is an acceptable mean to resolve the conflict. It was, a, uh, uh, it was an acceptable means on May 6, 2012, when the police dispersed an assembly. It's an acceptable means when so-called Titushki or uh, Afag's attack uh, Crimean Tatars. It's an acceptable mean then those people constitute a movement so-called anti-Maidan and say that they are willing to defend the government uh, and um, um, 
government ideology with their fists. It's an acceptable mean to uh, defend the state with violence. Uh, and this type of acceptance of violence is a very worrisome trend, a sort of outsourcing of government repression to non-state actors, a trend that has been around for quite a few years and that is very much intensifying now, uh, kind of reminding you of uh, previous stories in history when the government has uh, kind of um, shifted repression to non-state actors. Then, third factor... It's an enormous amount of uh, propaganda and an attempt to justify what exactly went wrong around those elections, what exactly went wrong around a um, number of people protesting, what exactly went wrong in the uh, falling approvals for the uh, people in power. And so we see now an enormous resurgence of various ideologies, not a single one, not a Soviet-style ideology, but sort of, sort of a postmodernist touch, you know, orthodox ideology there, post-imperial, neo-imperial ideology there, uh, anti-Western values here and there, increased rhetoric of sovereignty that prevails over human rights, uh, uh, over and over, and a kind of ideology of an isolated fortress that is attacked by the circle of enemies. And uh, we see that uh, it is not only a tendency uh, in, 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 in Russia. We see how these types of ideology have, are resurfacing in various other spots. And in that sense, the whole story of Crimea, December 10, 2014, uh, March 16, uh, uh, 2014, the so-called referendum, we can see how it is a turning point a break in the established uh, world order, reshaping of borders that gave a launch to a hybrid war in the east of Ukraine, uh, gave um, a number of pushes towards this anti-Western rhetoric in response to uh, Western sanction, and gave a point to the discussion that Russia is no longer, no longer wants to be part of Europe that it can seriously consider exiting Council of Europe, something that was, um, could not be um, predicted even in the beginning of this past year. That uh, uh, something given grounds to the discussion that Russia is not really Europe, that is, it's an own civilization, orthodox, Soviet, uh, Slavic, whatever. But a very uh, fundamentalist uh, approach to treating problems and a very kind of uh, uh, 19th century approach that uh, problems can be solved by force. And we see that this takeover of Crimea may, made uh, many things that seemed impossible even in the beginning of last year possible now. And we see how many illusions that people in Russia have shared going out on the streets on December 10th, 2011, and how many of the illusions that people in the West have shared towards Russia and towards the state of their own society and towards the state of the human rights ideology in general have been shattered. Uh, and I think that it is time to honestly reconsider those illusions, to, see, to say that there are harder times coming up, that there are uh, various fundamentalists that are being resurfaced, that Russian uh, 
resurfaced in this ideologies that I named is one uh, possible uh, way to, 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 to show that. And a time to also to reconsider how civil society in Russia and how civil society outside of Russia can address uh, those problems and can find a solution for a larger Europe and a Europe based on human rights and a Europe based on uh, non-violent solutions to crisis and to conflicts. And I think that's something that we should all consider and we should all think about. Uh, thank you. Thank you very much, Mary, Romano, and Dimitri, and also to keep up the time. Um, I, I wanted to exercise chairman's or chairwoman's uh, prerogative and just ask um, the other speakers if, if you have anything further to say about what you think should be done, either inside or uh, outside Russia, to help stop the erosion of, of human rights uh, in Russia. And if any of you want to say anything more, um, also Dmitry. Well, I, I, the first thing I'd like to say is that I have a feeling it's not for me to say it, that it's actually really now the ball is in your court in terms of what, we, what you would like the West to be doing, uh, if anything. Um, my personal opinion is that I think the West is playing it very wrong at the moment. I think it is helping create the siege mentality. It's strengthening the anti-Western feeling, uh, the nationalist feeling that exists, that the sanctions, I think, is a disastrous program. And I think really all efforts by Western leaders uh, or your, let's say European leaders. I think European leaders ought to have the guts to work together if they possibly could or can as European leaders to work with Russia to return to the ideas of a wider continental community that includes Russia, which is something that I think they've not been doing or paying attention to. They've been going in the other direction for the last few years. Uh, I think that this whole story that we are witnessing is not just a story of uh, Putin going crazy or something like that. And it's a story of uh, actually human rights being hijacked by politics. It's a story of international organizations not, uh, that were created to ensure security, to ensure human rights, not be, being impotent, basically. It's a story of um, individual responsibility for human rights violations being uh, switched being changed for sort of kind of political recourse to to general sanctions. It's a story of double track diplomacy. Then you can say that economy is one way, one one thing to to discuss. Security is another way to uh, thing to discuss, and human rights is a third thing. Uh, and it's uh, also a story of absence of strategy. I mean, uh, what do we do with uh, Russia? What do we do with Russia after Putin? What we do we do with Russia, uh, which is uh, um, on one way Europe, 
on our way is not really Europe? And what we, do we do with all the crises that we have in between, you know, these uh, things? And I think that there is very little reflection of that. And I do think that there's a lot that the, the West can also do in strengthening the international organizations, strengthening the human rights instruments, not just political kind of ways of pressure. And there are many things that they can do in terms of um, individual responsibility for human rights violations. And it definitely should do more in terms of strategy and how it sees the new kind of Europe, which hopefully will rebuild itself after this uh, crisis. <coughs> May I disagree with... <laughs> good, good, good. <laughs> and uh, uh, since the podcast will be published, I will reserve the questions. Do you remember what happened to the plan of Medvedev Sarkozy? It was in 2008, and Russian aggression in Georgia was some sort of forgiven, and in hope that uh, the Russia will remove its uh, troops to the pre-war place. And as far as I know, she or it didn't. And. Uh, as you know, uh, the war was at the height of the crisis. 2008, at least in Russia, there was a crisis. Now, Putin derived again Russia into crisis, and it wasn't long before uh, the Crimean Anschluss, I like to call it Anschluss, because it's very similar to Austrian occupation by Hitler. And uh, for that, they used almost all pension funding, if I'm not wrong, they run in a whole lot of economic problems because the authoritarian uh, power is not effective. We are not fighting for democracy per se. Democracies, in general, more wealthy, more peaceful, more well-being nations, and autocracies are not. And put, it's a long story about uh, how autocracies became corrupt, but Russia became corrupt, had become corrupt, and uh, uh, corrupted country economy is not efficient. And finally, we got into economic trouble, and finally, somebody in the Kremlin decided to solve the problem with the solution already helped. Uh, I mean, small... Uh, glorious victory in a war. Uh, like it was in Georgia, they tried to annex Crimea to solve the, to solve the same problem. Uh, and I'm afraid if we will forgive them again, like it was in case of Medvedev Sarkozy plan, they will repeat it and repeat ad infinitum. So I think we have to take into consideration that some people in the Kremlin are not uh, that peaceful and uh, are not that forthcoming as we thought in 2008. I mean, I'm clear. Thank you. So I'm now going to open to the floor. I'm going to take um, questions, three or four questions uh, at once, and then ask uh, our speakers which of the speakers would like to respond to your questions, unless you want, you want to ask one of the speakers a specific question. So you um, wait for the stewards in, dressed in red um, who have the, 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 the microphones. And um, please let me know if you'd like to ask a question. 
Okay, so we have the lady in the front here. Follow. Um, Hilary Stauffer, I'm a visiting fellow at the Center for the Study of Human Rights here at the LSE. And I wondered, for the panel at large, um, mainly to Mary, but I, I'd love everyone's um, input if you'd like. Um, you described at the time in 2010 that there was some kind of, um, perhaps, uh, rift between the human rights groups in Russia and which way they wanted to address the, the problems that they saw. And I wondered if um, there's, there's obviously some rift on the panel now, which makes for a great discussion, but it, it is the community, is the human rights um, community in Russia um, more cohesive about how what they want to do? Or are people scared or people just have no idea what the right, the right way to move forward is? Thank you for your talk. Uh, Tom, my name is Tom, LSE alumni. So Russia clearly saw very many protests in the past four years. Uh, there might be evidence nowadays that the trust towards government uh, is dropping. Uh, on the other hand, uh, what I see as an issue, and I just was wondering whether you see it as an issue, that as well, is the mistrust uh, towards NGOs and human rights NGOs in particular uh, is not really going away. And uh, with the current siege mentalities, uh, Dr. McCauley mentioned, it, it probably won't as well. So do you recognize it uh, as an issue? And if so, do you, uh, how do you tackle this, this problem? Thank you. I think we'll take those two questions because they're quite um, meaty questions. Right, just very, just briefly. Uh, no, the human rights community is not united. It's never been united, uh, and one wouldn't expect it to be. I don't think the human rights community in the UK is united. All right. What, all I would say that they probably do share in common is a belief that they should act legally and non-violently. But their aims and whom they wish to defend and why and how vary very much. I would argue that here we have a problem in that human rights community is not necessarily a community that can solve the present problems that Dimitri has outlined for you, we need now political action and political solutions, and we need a different set of actors. I mean, human rights community has been one of the most targeted groups uh, if you compare it to various other groups. So in that sense, uh, many human rights uh, organizations and their leaders are now dealing with uh, uh, kind of saving the NGOs saving themselves from uh, the ongoing checkups, from the organizations being closed, being fined, and so on. So there is uh, very little room in that sense to discuss common strategy, unfortunately. Uh, so in that sense, uh, um, there is a general understanding uh, that um, human rights community is facing an unprecedented crisis. And going back to the second questions about the general negative attitude towards NGOs, that may be true, and it's especially true now with all the state propaganda attacking the uh, foreign agents and attacking Western influence. But at the same time, when I come to the student audience, uh, 
and then I start talking to them. Then I ask about what, um, how often do they meet uh, with a policeman and how friendly are those encounters. If I ask them about how do they deal with a military conscription and what kind of problems they experience when they go to the doctor and what kind of quality of medical service they get. I mean, that's the questions that get them talking. And that's the problems that they keep on highlighting. And that's the problems of which they come to human rights NGOs. And that's the problems on which we consult them. Even though those very students may be our critics and maybe the ones actually protesting against our officers after they watch some uh, TV show about how foreign agents uh, run the protests in Russia and so on. But at the same time, there are human, genuine human rights problems and general human rights concerns in the populations, and they do come to human rights NGOs to solve them. So in that sense, there is a general demand for this type of action, uh, but there's very little understanding on, the, um, on, behalf of, on behalf of the people of how this whole community works, how it is structured, and from where it comes from, and so on. May I drop in? Uh, for electoral observation, it might be a little bit different uh, in comparison with other NGOs. We need a huge number of people. We have a huge number of volunteers, and we are not use them too much because it's usually once in a year they came up to our office, get instruction, got into polling station, and so on. So in this case, the question of trust should be divided between organization and volunteers. Volunteers, they are ordinary people, and it's very hard to, to mistrust an ordinary people if he or she puts on her Twitter a photo of a ballot box stuffing or tell some story and so on. So in this case, we are separate. We just collect this data and put it online. If you have some doubts, please call Mr. Ivanov or Mr. Sidorov and he'll explain what's happened. So in this case, we are more or less uh, safe. Uh, as organization, uh, as organization, yes, we, the, of course, uh, are under such a crackdown of propaganda, it's very difficult. And uh, uh, recently, we had another story on our national TV about uh, some money or whatever. But in this case, again, the essence of our work is data. We put it online, believe it or not. It's verifiable. I was showing the video on the left top of the video, the official watermark, uh, showing that it goes from the almighty Putin's webcams, or so on. Or you always can trace down to the uh, source of information. It's ordinary people who is just engineer or student, largely. Uh, we have a lot of uh, students, and so on. About mistrust, about being scared. Again, we have to to separate organization goals, our websites, our experts. They are really under threat, and we are thinking about how to survive. On the other hand, our volunteers they they don't they didn't do anything wrong. Yes, I went according to the Russian electoral law. I have a right to be an observer. Okay, I go to according to Russian electoral law. I, I have a right to make a picture. Okay, according to Russian electoral law, I can put it online. I didn't do anything wrong. And if you attacked Mr. Sidorov or Mr. Ivanov, a student or engineer, it looks strange. Why the government is attacking such a peaceful citizens? 
So in this case, we have to separate situation between organization and volunteers. And our volunteers are not scared. And uh, as I, it was told before, I, I do organize, uh, organized, uh, I have organized a mission into Ukraine. And at some point, our partner said no. Uh, Ukraine is very dangerous for you Russians. So they refused our offer and our guys went on their own. They contacted some World Congress of Ukrainians. Uh, they gave them ideas and they went on their own. Nothing happened to them at all. At the same time, Two months ago, yes, two months ago, there was elections in, in Moscow in September, a month ago, and the, some of our guys were beaten, some of our guys were expelled from the polling stations, and they were not scared. They, they knew that they are doing. They entered that polling station, they confronted the, uh, the, the, the I'm talking about real, a real case, they confronted the mm, commission, they found the ballot box stuffed, they made picture, they put it online, uh, some thugs were sent to that commission, they beaten that guy up, but still the more, he's absolutely unscared and he continues his work. So I think that uh, some sort of volunteers are very tough guys. <laughs> okay. um, we've time for another round of questions, if anybody would like to ask. Yes, the gentleman in the... I don't know how many rows from the top. Uh, hello, I'm Vincent. I'm a journalism student at City University. Um, you've talked about how there's this kind of creeping control over NGOs and movements with gradually infringing laws. Uh, I'm wondering about... Uh, uh, le lesbian, gay, bisexual and transgender... Um, Protesting because obviously there's the laws against propaganda. How can an organization or an NGO uh, approach that when they technically aren't able to speak about it? And how can they go into the future protesting for those changes? Okay. Any other questions? Yes, uh, just behind you. Uh, David Joss, I'm a lawyer. Dr. McCauley talked about the effect that the Council of Europe and some of the decisions of the European Court of Human Rights had had and how that had been a positive influence. We also then heard that there was some chance that Russia would leave the Council of Europe. To what extent uh, is the Council of Europe and the Court a positive influence and how does it influence human right development? Would you like to answer those two questions? Who would like to take the Well, I can start with the second question because it's uh, quite easy for me. And also, I see Bill Bowring there in the audience that has been leading a number of uh, European court cases from coming from Russia that had a direct impact. Whether we're talking about the cases of impunity in Chechnya that has sent at least some signal that justice is possible for the victims, or whether we're talking about uh, cases of prisoners who had their conditions changed not only in the individual cases but in overall of Russia. So there are some small steps that have been uh, taken because of the European Court decisions. Now, the uh, current drift between the European Court, the Council of Europe, and Russia. It's um, having less to do with uh, 
court, European court decisions, although you might argue that the recent UCAS case with unprecedented high uh, reparations uh, may be a factor, but at the same time it's also dealing with the general kind of anti-Western rhetoric, anti-European uh, rhetoric, uh, and uh, the uh, trying to shift the blame for the problems that Russia is currently ex- uh, experiencing towards towards uh, the West. Uh, but I mean, you can you can trace uh, certain improvements in Russia directly to European court uh, uh, jurisprudence. Now, as for the um, LGBT groups, uh, they have been targeted uh, for quite some years. They have been targeted by the state, and they also have been targeted by the non-state actors. And um, it is, uh, I would say, one of the first marginal groups that has been, uh, um, how to say, uh, given justification for uh, this sort of uh, violent uh, recourse, that uh, the attacks towards LGBT people went unpunished, the bans for assemblies were highly publicized as justified, and this whole group was portrayed as something of evil and something of evil that coming from the West. So, uh, yes, uh, there are LGBT groups are among those who are targeted now under the foreign agents law and uh, there are also but in general now they are kind of lost in the general appeal uh, yeah in the general um, attack on various fronts towards various civil society actors that have been active on different uh, scale my, uh, I guess I don't think I'll add, add anything. Um, Except to say that I think it would be disastrous if Russia left the Council of Europe of and therefore no longer turning to the European Court. And I would have thought European politicians should put their minds to it. LGDP is absolutely out of <laughs> course interests and electoral observation and elections. But uh, as for the um, Human Rights Court, uh, it's a very good phrase, my friend told. Justice is possible is the main phrase, I think, when people look at what's going on in Russia. I, I like to say that in Russia there's no court except YouTube. Because YouTube is actually a court. You put online evidence, you have uh, arguments in comments, and fi- sooner or later you reach a verdict with those up and down stunts. <laughs> yes, in Russia, the only court is YouTube. Outside of Russia, we have uh, Strasbourg, and we are able to appeal there uh, as from the, even from the side of golf. For example, as Dmitry was explaining, to be a foreign agent, you have to receive some money. The, associa- uh, the Golos Association received money. Uh, we were on the threshold of receiving money. And those money was awarded. Uh, it's very strange to say. It was a Sakharov Award of Freedom. And then awarded us 7,000 euros. And that money was 
as like a word uh, uh, was sent to us, but uh, technically the, the money haven't hadn't reached our accounts. It's uh, difficult to explain Russian system of banking, but anyway, <laughs> it was uh, it was a transitional uh, transitional account, and we when we knew uh, that uh, such such as money arrived, we say sent it back immediately, and the bank sent it back. But still, the more we were accused of receiving money. We said, excuse me, we have a special letter from a, a very I- important Russian bank, Sberbank. It's uh, Sberbank, it's, it's run by the state. And that letter was saying that Golas has not received, uh, has not received any money. Please. Your high uh, you judge, look at this paper. Still, the more we were accused, and now we uh, are hoping that Strasbourg will help us to sort this out. It's on the Gola side. On the election side, we can uh, we know that people from Saint Petersburg complained about elections of 2011. They complained about uh, election, so-called election of uh, uh, Miss Matvienko to Strasbourg again. So people see this like a last ray of hope if such a phrase exists. So please don't switch off that light. Thank you. I haven't got time. We haven't got time for more questions. I'm really sorry. Um, I I just want, before thanking you um, and making some concluding remarks, I just want to um, uh, say a few household things. Um, And that is, is that you're interested in future LSE human rights events do keep in touch via Twitter, Facebook, or subscribe to the mailing list on the Centre's website. Um, Next week, that is the Wednesday, the 28th of January, um, Solicitor Geras Pierce um, and academic expert Saskia Sassen and Jeanne Theoharis will be discussing the human rights implications of UK to US extradition and you'll find uh, further details on the website. The um, events office uh, of LSE has asked me to tell you um, that this is RAG week um, and that uh, LSE students will be collecting for charities after this event. Um, Last year they raised some uh, £75,000 and this year they're supporting Spires which is a homeless shelter in South London, um, into university, a charity aimed at getting children from disadvantaged backgrounds into university, and War Child, um, who, among other things, create child-friendly areas. I don't know how you do that in war zones. Um, so please uh, give generously if you're able to. Um, I want to thank you all very much for coming, um, and I especially want to thank our speakers for, for, for their really fascinating presentations and to wish you, I mean, to say that I think we all have to hope, and indeed I really believe, that justice is possible in Russia, and, and we really wish you all the best in the incredibly difficult circumstances that you have to work in today. So please join me and...